Hello, friends. This is Dr. Tim Jordan, and thank you for joining me here on this podcast called Raising Daughters. I'm a developmental and behavioral pediatrician who has counseled girls for about 30 years. I've also had the privilege of being able to sit with groups of girls on the carpet at my weekend retreats and my summer camps called Camp Wilokai for Girls, and also my Strong Girls, Strong World school program. And all that time I spent for the last 25 years on the floor in circles with girls has taught me a lot about what's going on for them, how girls are thinking and feeling, and I want to be able to pass that information on to you in this, in this podcast that's called Raising Daughters. Let me start out today to introduce this topic by telling you a story about a little girl who many years ago, about 50, 60 years ago, she went into a diner all by herself and sat down at a table. That alone will tell you that this was a long time ago because we would never let our daughters go into a diner today and sit down and get something to eat. Anyway, this little girl sat down and a waitress came by with a glass of water and she said, what would you like? And the little girl said to the waitress, um, how much is an ice cream sundae? And the waitress said, 50 cents. A little girl dug into her pocket with her hand and, and pulled out some change and started counting it. And she looked at the waitress and she said, how much just for a plain ice cream? The waitress had a bunch of tables that were filling up and she was getting impatient. So she said, 35 cents. The little girl looked back down at her change in her hand and she said, just give me a, um, a bowl of the plain ice cream then. The waitress went off, came back a few minutes later, put the bowl of ice cream down and walked away. The little girl very, very slowly ate her ice cream and then she paid her bill and she left. A few minutes later, the waiter went back to the waitress went back to clean up the table, and there she found, next to her, the empty bowl of ice cream, a little pile of money. There were two nickels and five pennies, her tip. I think that we need to start this conversation about generosity and about how to help girls become generous by understanding that girls are generous and empathetic by nature. They start that way right from the womb. There's good evidence that shows that even babies are empathetic to other, other babies' cries. But this discussion today is talking about when our daughters are in grade school, middle school, high school, and beyond, what are some things that we can do to help them become more generous people? I think there's a lot of concern in the culture today about uh, are we raising kids who are spoiled, overindulged, uh, can't delay gratification, only think about themselves, have to be the best and unique. And so I think this topic of generosity is an important one. Let me tell you about a few studies that have been done about kids and generosity that I think will help uh, shine some light on what we can do to support our daughters. One of them was a study by Joan Grusick, G-R-U-S-E-C. And she did a study where these kids played a game with marbles and the kids won some tokens. The kids then were uh, encouraged to donate and give away some of their earnings and some of their tokens to some poor kids. This is over 250 7 to 10 year olds, by the way. They then split the group into two, two groups. One group, after they, were, after they did their, their donation, these kids were praised for their behavior, for their actions, if you will. And the author called that reinforcement. So they said things to these kids like, that was a really nice thing that you did, or that was a helpful thing that, to do. The other half of the kids, they praised their character. They told these kids they must have donated because they were helpful people. And the author called this attribution. So they would say things to these kids like, you're the kind of person who loves to help other people whenever you can. You really are a kind and helpful person. That's what they called praising character. And what they found is, is that later than that day and weeks later, 
that the kids who were praised for their character became much more generous people. What the study found was that kids whose character was praised, who were affirmed for their character, it helped them internalize generosity as part of who they were, as part of their identity, if you will. They started seeing themselves as being a helpful person. And they, when they started seeing themselves as that, which felt really good to them, it want, they wanted to keep earning that identity, if you will. Developing a self-concept that they are a moral person uh, was much more important than seeing themselves doing just isolated, nice things. So it became less about the action and more about them as a person. They were learning who they were from observing their own behavior, if you will. So tying generosity to character appears to matter most around eight years of age, too, which is really interesting, when kids are starting to crystallize notions of who they are. Uh, when kids are more like five and six years of age, the, the acknowledging character had less of an effect, and when they were 10 and above, it also had less effect. There's something about that sweet spot around eight years of age that appears to be really important uh, for this notion of generosity and affirming character. Also, when you shift the emphasis from actions to character, kids tend to take action because it becomes the right thing to do. They've internalized that they're a moral, altruistic person. They've internalized what's right and wrong. And so they, they, they act from that place as opposed to, am I going to get a reward for this? Am I going to be punished if I don't? Am I going to look good? It becomes more about who they are. Let's shift gears and talk about another good study that I read uh, from Samuel and Pearl Oliner, O-L-I-N-E-R. And they did research on non-Jewish people who had risked their lives to save Jews during the Holocaust. They looked at these, at these adults who had gone out of their way to do what most people did not, which was risk their lives. And they wanted to see, what, is there anything different about them and their upbringing that allowed them to become that kind of a person who would stand up for people like the Jewish people during the Holocaust? What they found was that their rescuers had been parented differently. Their parents disciplined by giving more explanations of why their behaviors were not okay. They were less punitive. And they stayed away from the authoritative model. The authoritative model, what is that about? The authoritative model of parenting is things like being punitive. Um, it's characterized by having high demands and low responsiveness. You have very high expectations of your kids, but don't supply so much support or warmth or nurturance. Mistakes tend to be punished. Uh, yelling and spanking are, are involved oftentimes and very common. They oftentimes utilize punishments with little or no explanation. They don't give kids much choices or options or much power. That's what they call the authoritarian uh, style of parenting. These rescuers, the people who are not Jewish, who risked their lives to save the Jews, came from a different parenting model, what we tend to call authoritative or more democratic model. These kids were given more choices, more decision-making, uh, these parents were, were more responsive to their kids, willing to listen to questions and different perspectives. When kids made mistakes, they were more nurturing and forgiving. Uh, they were more supportive and less punitive. Um, and they were much, they were much more likely to, to use explanations uh, and reasoning when they, were, when they were disciplining. And that ex explanation and, and that reasoning model tended to communicate to the kids a level of respect. And it kind of implied that if a kid had just known better, if the kid understood more, they would not have acted that way. It was a sense of, I believe in you, I know who you are as a person, so I know that if you had just known better, known better, you would not have done that. It conveyed faith in the kids that they would improve and develop. It also, these explanations and the reasoning model, that authoritative model, it enabled kids to develop a code of ethics 
that was oftentimes and usually the same as society's expectations. So that when their, when their feelings and what was right or wrong was not in alignment, they had learned to rely on their internal compass instead of things outside of themselves. The kids who grew up in the homes where their parents used that authoritative kind of parenting, these non-Jews and during the Holocaust times, their parents also helped them become aware of the consequences of their actions on others. So if they made a mistake, uh, parents helped their kids see how their actions hurt other people. This uh, aroused feelings of guilt and empathy, and that strengthened their motivation to do the right thing the next time and to avoid the mistakes in the future. Um, they also, these parents, helped their kids reflect on victims in society who are suffering and injustice. And when they thought about people who were victims in that way, they ended up becoming people who were more likely to speak up um, because they were activated by what the authors called empathetic anger, which was the desire to do the right thing and to, and to right wrongs done to other people. So your style of parenting, the model of parenting that you're using with your kids, can either hurt or help your, your kids becoming more or less generous people. I think we, I want our kids to be guided to become generous and moral human beings who are guided by their internal compass instead of the, their peers or the culture. And parenting in the way I just described will help in, uh, towards that goal. When I work with kids in my personal growth weekend retreats and summer camps, and also in my Strong Girl, Strong World uh, classroom program, I love to do exercises that allow kids to get into other people's shoes, to see other people's perspective, uh, to see things from another person's point of view. Let me give you an example. There's an old Aesop's fable called The Mole and the Porcupine, and it goes like this. There was a group of moles who once one fall decided to dig a, a huge deep den where they could live during the, the cold winter. So they worked very hard all, all fall to dig and dig and dig. They brought leaves and moss and grass into their little, little den, if you will. And by the time the first snows came, they were cozy and warm in their little den. Until there was a knock on the door one day. When they opened up it up, there was a porcupine outside freezing in the cold. And the porcupine said, can you please let me come and live with you? I, I have no place to go. If I stay out here in the snow, I'll freeze to death. Will you please, please let me stay with you? Well, the moles huddled together, and they finally decide, sure, we can't let this, this porcupine die, so they invite the porcupine in. And for the first few days, things went okay, but then what happened was the moles kept bumping into the porcupine and getting stuck by the quills, and they got more and more frustrated, so they huddled together to decide, what are we going to do? This is not working out for us. I tell that story to kids in my retreats and camps and things, and then I stop and I say, line up. I have one line of moles on one side and a line of porcupines on the other. And one at a time, the, the moles tell the porcupines their point of view, why they think that the porcupine should go or stay. And I teach the porcupines to just listen and mirror back what they hear. And then we have the porcupines share to the moles how they feel about what's going on. And then the, at that point, the moles just mirror. And then I had the kids switch sides. So now they each have, have had an opportunity to become a mole and a porcupine. Once they've, they've done all of that, then I have the two in their pairs figure out what's a win-win solution where everybody's needs can be met. And it's fascinating the kind of ideas that these kids come up with. I was just at a school working with a classroom of girls a couple days ago, and this was third graders. 
And a couple of the ideas that they came up with was, number one, they could, the moles could help dig out a new third room so that the porcupine would have their own room. Another group said they would take some straw and grass and moss and they would make a coat and put the coat on the porcupine so the needles wouldn't stick them. And another kids, another group said they could get some cork or some bark and stick it on the ends of the, of the porcupine's quills so it wouldn't stick the moles. The point is this, teach them to get out of themselves into the shoes of someone else. See things from another person's perspective. When kids do that, when they practice perspective taking, it promotes cognitive problem solving and empathy. Imagining how other people, how other people think, how they feel, how other people see the world. So I'm encouraging you day by day to look for opportunities for your kids to do that. Uh, when you're reading books together, when you're watching a TV show or you watch a movie or people on the news or book characters or, or if your kids come home with an example from school, I would ask questions like, how do you think that person felt? If you were that person, how would you feel? What would you do? You have lots of opportunities to talk through those kinds of scenarios with kids and all that will help them become more empathetic and thus more generous people. I heard a story about two little girls one day who were at their school in the evening for some kind of a, like a fall uh, festival kind of thing. And there was a long, long table full of, of food and snacks. So the two girls start at the front of the line and there's a big bowl of apples, bright red, shiny apples. And there's a little sign, like a little placard in front of the apples. And it said, please only take one apple and remember, God is watching. So the two little girls looked at each other, and they just took one apple and moved on down the line. When they got to the end, there was a huge platter of freshly baked, warm chocolate chip cookies. The first girl looked around, and she grabbed about 10 cookies and piled them on her plate. And her little friend said, whoa, don't you think we should only take one? And the first little girl looked down at her, and she said, look, take as many as you want. God's watching the apples. I think another piece of this generosity puzzle is why kids make decisions, why they're motivated to do what they do. Why would they be motivated to make a good choice instead of a bad choice? And I'm going to refer back to Lawrence Kohlberg's Six Stages of Moral Development. Uh, I've switched them a little bit for my own doing, if you will, but this, these are like reasons why you would do something, including generous behavior. The first reason, the lowest level, if you will, of motivation is you do something because you don't want to get in trouble. You do something to avoid punishment. That's a low level of motivation. Just above that is you do something for reward. Uh, we know from good research that when kids are, are rewarded for generosity or they are punished for it or for not being generous, that they become less generous people down the line. That's the second level. The third level of moral development is you make a decision, you do something because you want to please somebody. Again, it's not bad, but... That's not a high level of motivation to do something because you don't want somebody's dis disapproval because somebody might be disappointed in you. That's still about somebody else. The fourth level of moral development, a little bit higher level of reasoning about why to do the right thing, is because it's a rule and you're supposed to follow the rules. Unfortunately, rules are not always there. Rules aren't always clear. And so if you don't have your own internal set of, of internal rules, then you're in trouble. Next level, next higher level of moral development or reasoning, reasoning for doing the right thing is because you're considering other people. You start thinking about how will my actions affect other people and you will make choices based upon that.
Again, not good, bad, just a higher level of, of motivation. And the highest level, level six of motivation for doing the right thing, including being generous, is, is that you have a personal code of behavior and ethics and you follow it. You don't need people telling you what to do. You don't always go by what the group is doing. You do it because you know what's right. You've internalized that. It's who you are. And you remain true to your code. There are three people I think about when I think about level six moral reasoning. The first one is Atticus Finch from To Kill a Mockingbird. I'm sure most of you have read that that book or, or seen the movie. Atticus Finch lived in a small southern town back in the 30s. 1930s, and he, he was asked to take on a case of a black man who was accused of raping a white woman. Nobody else wanted that case. They knew there was no way there was going to be a fair trial, and Atticus Finch took it on because it was the right thing to do. There was also a part of the movie when he was talking to his little girl, Scout, we talked to her about getting in other people's shoes and walking around in it because you never really know someone until you do that. That was one of the ways that he developed his code of ethics was by looking at other people's perspectives. Let me tell you two other stories that I think are fascinating. One of them involves Robert E. Lee, who after the surrender at Appomattox in 1865, he returned to Richmond, Virginia, where he was from. And uh, one Sunday he went to church and at the service, there were lots of people from the Confederacy, lots of generals. It was like a who's who, uh, who's who of the Confederacy, if you will. The minister did his service, and at one point, he invited the congregation to come forward to, to receive some communion. As soon as the, the minister said that, a tall black man stood up, and he walked to the railing, and he, he knelt down, and a deafening pause followed. Nobody knew what to do. The war had just ended. Emotions were still high. People weren't quite sure what was going to be happening with whites and blacks and all that. And so there was a hush and a silence, and, and nobody did anything for a few moments until a person rose from his seat, and he walked down the long cathedral aisle to the rail, and he knelt down right next to the black stranger to receive communion. And, and so there kneeling, the two men redeemed the circumstances of time and destiny. This, this man, this white man, was Robert E. Lee. After they received their communion and they bowed their heads, the congregation, it was said, rose one at a time to walk up the aisles to receive their communion as well. And the people who were there described it as a moment of grace. That's an example of level six moral reasoning. Robert Lee had a lot of reasons to not do that, but he did it because it was the right thing to do. Last quick example. I love this story. This is a true story about a man from Italy. His name was Eugenio Monti. I love saying that name. Eugenio Monti. He was an Italian bobsledder who held over 10 world championship titles, and he went to the 1964 Olympics at a year that his team was supposed to win. In, uh, in the first heat of the four-man event, the Canadian bobsledding team broke an Olympic record, but they also sustained some damage to one of their axles, and they didn't have the, the equipment and, the, and uh, the team to fix it. That's when Monty stepped in. He sent his mechanics over to repair the Canadian team's sled. The next day, the Canadian team was unstoppable. The Canadian team took home the gold, and the Italian team won the bronze. 
awesome thing. Two days later, there was the final round of competition in the two-man bobsled. The British team, which, which was doing pretty well, but the Italian team was supposed to be beating them. They were supposed to be number one. The British team discovered they had a faulty bolt on their sled that was going to prevent them from doing their final run on the final day. When Monty heard about this, he removed a bolt from his own bobsled and he gave it to the British team. That day, the British team completed a successful run and they won the gold medal and once again, Italy received the bronze. Well, it was interesting that uh, there was some criticism for his good deeds because his team lost, but ultimately his selflessness earned him a medal called the Pierre de Coubertin Medal. This award is given to Olympic athletes who demonstrate outstanding sportsmanship, and Eugenio Monti was the first athlete to ever win that award. That's another example of level six reasoning. So what we've been talking about up till now, hopefully will help your kids learn to internalize right from wrong, to develop their own internal compass, to develop the identity that says I am a moral, altruistic, generous person, and then that will rule the day for them for the rest of their lives. Let me talk about one more piece of this puzzle of generosity, and that's about role modeling. There's a very interesting experiment that was done by J. Philippe Rushton, R-U-S-H-T-O-N. And he took about 140 elementary and middle school students, and he gave them tokens for winning a game. And then, it was interesting, he divided the group in half. Half the kids watched one of their teachers play the game selfishly. The other half watched their teacher play the game generously. And then those two groups were split into two more groups where, where each of them was either preached the value of taking and competing or of being giving and generous. I know it sounds complicated, but <laughs> stay with me. What they found was is that the kids who saw the teacher behave selfishly during the, the game after they had played, those kids became less generous, and they gave less tokens in subsequent games. The kids um, who saw a teacher play generously and who gave lots of tokens when they played, those kids donated more than 85% more than the other kids. They acted much more generously. And it didn't matter if they got a lecture about competition or about being generous. It had no effect. The only effect came from what they saw. Both sets of kids, the kids who saw a selfish teacher and the kids who saw a generous teacher, the words that the teacher spoke, the lecture they gave had no effect. The selfish teacher didn't, didn't cause the other kids to be less selfish or more generous, had no effect. The kids who saw the generous teacher were generous no matter what. The obvious moral of this story is that actions speak louder than words. Kids learn generosity not by listening to our lectures, but by watching what we do. And remember that they are watching us day and night. They're watching how you treat your friends. They're watching what you say about people when you watch the news. They're watching how you treat relatives. And they're also observing how you parent. So remember, remember that marble study. Remember that it's much more valuable to acknowledge character than it is to acknowledge actions and behavior. Acknowledging character is talking about telling kids uh, that you notice what a generous person they were, 
how, that, they, that they are a kind person, that they are a generous person, they, they are an altruistic person. Be aware of your style of parenting. Remember that the, authorit- uh, the authoritative style, the more democratic style, the style that uses reasoning and explanations, the style that allows kids to make mistakes and to learn from them, the style that helps kids reflect on the consequences of their actions on other people, so the kids develop some empathy to do the right thing the next time. Remember to find opportunities to help your kids get in other people's shoes. People in their lives, kids from school, people they see on, on movies and TV shows, characters that they read about in books. Have them look at other people. How, do the, how are the other people feeling? Get in their shoes, walk around them. Help them see other people's perspectives. That helps a ton in developing empathy and generosity. Remember about those six levels of moral development. Stay away from the, from the stick and carrot, you know, punishment reward kind of models because those will keep kids stuck in a lower level of motivation. You want your kids internalizing that they are generous, moral, altruistic people because out of that identity, they will become more generous in their actions. Uh, let me tell you one more story because we started with the one. We may as well end with one. There was a little girl and she was holding two apples one day, and her mom asked her if she could have one. And the little girl said, sure. And then the girl quickly bit into one apple and then the other. And her mom looked at her with kind of disappointment, like, what are you doing? Like she was, you know, this little kid was going to eat both apples. But the girl surprised her mom by handing her one and saying, here, mommy, this is the sweeter one. Don't judge your kids. Don't assume that they're not generous. Do, do your job. Kids, I think, are empathetic by nature. Your job is, is to support it. Your job is to provide opportunities for it to come to fruition. Your job is to acknowledge it and affirm it. And if you do that, you will raise daughters who are generous and altruistic people. If you enjoy this podcast, please feel free to, to share it, pass it on to people who have daughters, uh, people who have kids who, or you think that might be valuable for them. If you have ideas about um, future podcasts, things you would like for me to talk about, things you like, would like for me to research or give my opinion about, please send me an email at drtim at drtimjordan.com. You can also visit my website. I have lots of information about the things that I do. There's, there's 205 podcasts, I'm sorry, not podcasts, but blogs I've written in the past. You can read those for more information. Uh, that's at www.timjordan.com. And remember this quote from Dr. Spock, Parents, you're probably doing a better job of parenting than you think you are. And my guess is you're probably doing a much better job of parenting your daughters than you think you are. Um, focus on what we talked about today. Focus on yourself. Focus on your modeling. And your, your daughters are going to be just fine. I appreciate you listening in. I will be back next week with a different topic, uh, with some different stories. I hope you enjoyed this. I appreciate you stopping by each week to listen in. Um, thanks and have a great day.